By the winter of 1090, Constantinople hung on by a thread. To say that times had been hard of late for the great city, still the largest and arguably the most magnificent that the world had ever seen, would be a colossal understatement. Ever since the catastrophic defeat at Manzikert in 1071 against the Seljuk Turks, and the even more devastating two decades long civil war that had followed in its wake, the empire had lost the vast majority of its territory in Asia Minor, lands that had been held by the Romans since the days of Julius Caesar over a thousand years before. By 1080, an estimated 78,000 square kilometres of imperial territory had gradually seen itself chipped away by the efforts of usurpers, regional strongmen and invading Turkic tribesmen. By 1090, just a scattering of mountainous holdouts in the interior and a few imperial enclaves on the Black Sea remained as an ever precarious bulwark against total Byzantine eviction from Asia Minor. For the first time in close to 400 years, the great city itself now stood on the very front line of enemy attack. The only consolation being that for the very first time in five decades, an effective military commander, an able-bodied administrator, sat on the imperial throne. The young general, Alexius Comnenus, himself originally a usurper, had successfully seized power in 1081, and since that time had made it his mission to save the empire. He'd been fighting the Seljuks in the field since the age of 14, the Normans since his early 20s, and by 1090 he'd been forced to put down innumerable other internal rebellions and outside invasions for close to a decade. Yet despite all this hard work in keeping the empire afloat, all of his efforts would prove meaningless should he not be able to win the next battle coming his way in the spring of 1091. For some three years now, terrified reports had flooded into the capital of yet another impending disaster, not from the east this time, but from the imperial-held lands to the west in Europe. Rumours of a vast horde of steppe warriors riding down from the Pontic Plains north of the Black Sea. It was an entire nation on the move. Men, women and children. Almost 80,000 people in all. All of the males and many of the females, expert horse warriors, blooded from a harsh life on the Central Asian steppe, and now seeking to capitalise on the growing imperial weakness on their southern border. Much to the horror of the Byzantine citizens of the Balkans, the Pechenegs were on the warpath. Ordinarily, an invasion of steppe warriors from the Pontic steppe would have been made light work of. Innumerable armies of them had tried before, many of them far more numerous and dangerous than the Pechenegs. The Avars, the Bulgars and the Magyars to name a few. Yet this was no ordinary situation. The long drawn out conflicts of the 1070s and 1080s had arguably been the worst catastrophe to ever befall the Empire in its 700 year long history. Due to a severe lack of manpower stemming from a severe hemorrhaging of territory suffered in recent years and the sheer number of different enemies to contend with, the European domains of the Empire lay wide open to attack. A 
and just in case this deluge of humanity descending upon the Balkans wasn't enough to bring down Constantinople once and for all, two rebellious imperial governors, Rapsamites in Cyprus and Karakis in Crete, also seized the opportunity to go their own way at this time, not only refusing to answer Alexios's call for aid, but entirely relinquishing any fealty that they had previously given to Constantinople in the process. Alexius might have been forgiven for giving up there and then, faced as he was with the terrible and seemingly unassailable odds against him. Yet he isn't remembered as one of the greatest Byzantine emperors in history for no reason. And besides, an even greater threat than the Pechenegs and the rebellious generals combined loomed large on his southern flank. It was there, at the city of Smyrna, just to the south of Constantinople, along the Aegean coast of Asia Minor. A ruthless warlord has set himself up as a king there in the last years of the 1080s. Like the two rebel generals in Cyprus and Crete, and unlike the Pechenegs, he was well-versed in the ways of the Byzantine military machine, having served as a general under Alexius's predecessor, Nikephorus Botaniatus, during the late 1070s, receiving the title Nobilissimus for his loyal service one of the highest imperial ranks that could be given in the late Roman Empire. When Alexius ousted the ageing Nikephorus in 1081, however, that general had been driven into exile and probably harboured a personal grudge against Alexius for the rest of his days. To make matters even worse for Alexius, that general who had set himself up in Smyrna was an August Turk. His name was Chakas, and not only did he have the audacity to proclaim himself as the new Byzantine emperor in 1090 in flagrant dismissal of Alexius's own legitimacy, but it's also thought extremely likely that he had actually masterminded the multi-pronged assault on Constantinople in 1091, coordinating not only the Pechenegs and the rebel Byzantine generals, but also attempting to enlist the services of fellow Turkic mercenary commanders in the rest of Asia Minor in order to not only bring down Alexius, but put himself on the imperial throne instead. Though scarcely remembered today, for those imperial citizens living through the dark days of the 1080s and early 1090s, it must have seemed like the end had truly come. And as soon as it did come, Chakas, the most powerful Turkic warlord of his day, would be there to pick up the pieces to build anew in his own image. Very little is known of Chakas's early life. Most of what is known comes from a single literary source, the Alexiad, written by Anna Komnena, the daughter of Alexius Komnenus. A renowned scholar and historian, Anna Komnena enjoys the distinction of being perhaps the only princess in history to write a detailed historical work on her own father, which remains one of the most important works of the Middle Ages. According to her account, Chakas had originally been a Turco-Pole raider, one of the multitudes that had ridden into Anatolia during the decade-long civil war which followed the disaster at Manzikert in 1071. 
Though officially, and quite paradoxically, the Seljuk Empire tended to have no quarrel with the Byzantines, themselves facing what was generally perceived to be a far greater enemy in the form of the Fatimids of Egypt on their southern flank, the new Seljuk Sultan, Malik Shah, had no control over the tribesmen who lived beyond the official borders of his state, on the fringes of Seljuk society. Chakas seems to have been just one of these raiders operating outside the remit of the Seljuk authorities, notable others being Danish Mendgazi, who later formed his own independent state in the east of Anatolia, a state that outlived the Seljuk Empire itself. This was a time of chaos in Asia Minor, as not only Turks, but also regional Byzantine commanders, Armenians, and Normans all vied for a small slice of the crumbling state, at times working as mercenaries for various claimants to the imperial throne, and at others seeking to pursue their own ends, be they nationalistic in the form of the Armenians, or entirely for personal gain in the form of the Normans. By the late 1070s, after an entirely unrecorded career in Asia Minor, Chakas was taken as a prisoner by the new emperor, Nikephorus Botaniatus, who had seized power from the ineffective Emperor Michael Dukas in 1078. Nikephorus already had a well-established reputation for using Turks in his armies, utilising their mobility and mastery at horse archery to devastating effect. Thus, after a short time in a Constantinople dungeon, Chakas was not only released, but entered into the service of the Imperial Army. Rapidly proving himself time and time again to be an invaluable asset to the Emperor, Chakas rose through the ranks until he received the Emperor's personal favour and was endowed with rich gifts. By 1081, however, the ageing Nikephorus had also established a reputation of being a tyrant and was himself successfully deposed by the young general Alexius Comnenus. For one reason or another, Chakas lost his position in the army and fled Constantinople to take refuge to the south and rebuild his power, just as Alexius was forced to concentrate all of his energies on a new Norman incursion on the Adriatic coastline, led by the fierce mercenary commander Robert Guiscard and his equally ferocious bastard son, Bohemund of Taranto. Chakas continued to amass more and more nefarious individuals around himself, building an army by the mid-1080s. Though the exact date is unknown, by 1088, before Alexius or any of his generals could do anything about it, Chakas was not only in control of a substantial realm centred on the city of Smyrna, halfway down Anatolia's western coastline, but he had also amassed himself a large fleet of ships, employing Christian Greek craftsmen to construct vessels to the specifications of the Byzantine Imperial Navy. By the summer of 1090, through a combination of bribes, machinations and warfare, Jakas successfully extended his power over the entire Aegean coastline. By the autumn, his fleet was ready, and possibly with the acquiescence, if not the direct support of the usurpers, Rapsamites in Cyprus and Carikis in Crete, he had little difficulty in seizing the key Byzantine islands of Lesbos, Chios, Samos and Rhodes. Byzantine fleet under Nicetus Castamonides was sent against him, 
but Chakas defeated it in battle. By the end of 1090, just like Giscard before him over on the Adriatic coastline, Chakas had his sights firmly set on nothing less than the imperial throne itself. And as his navy circled in on the great city, it would take a huge amount of luck for the emperor to prevent this from happening. Fortunately for Alexius, the winds of change began to blow his way in 1091, just as Chakas's war galleys roamed the Aegean in preparation for the final assault on Constantinople. The Pechenegs over in Thrace prepared themselves to descend upon the immediate vicinity of the great city itself on its European side. In response, Alexios amassed his entire military together and threw his cards on the table for one last decisive battle. Charging headlong directly towards the Pechenegs' war camp at Lavunian, near modern-day Aderna, on Turkey's European side. Unfortunately for the Pechenegs, who had brought their entire nation with them on the move, Alexius had a secret trick up his sleeve. He brought with him his own nomadic steppe warriors, in the form of the Cumans. Humans and the Pechenegs were actually a related people, both being Turkic pastoralists originating in Central Asia, and neither held any particular ill will against the other. Alexius had simply made the Cumans an offer that they couldn't refuse. The plan worked perfectly, and the Imperial Army, bolstered by Cuman auxiliaries, took the Pechenegs completely by surprise leading to a vicious bloodbath on the banks of the river Maritza on April 29th, 1091. Alexius was taking no chances. He simply couldn't afford to. And on that fateful day, almost the entire Pechenegg nation, a mainstay on the political scene of Eastern Europe for over two centuries, was wiped out under the full might of the Imperial Byzantine army. As many as 80,000 people all in all. The few survivors of the massacre were either taken into imperial service or escaped into obscurity, never to be heard of again. The Battle of Livunion was nothing less than the single most decisive victory achieved by a Byzantine army for more than half a century. It marked a major turning point for the Empire. Having reached rock bottom over the last 20 years, Livunion signalled to the world that now, at last, the Empire was on the road to recovery. The Pechenegs had been utterly destroyed, and the Empire's European possessions were now secure once more. Alexius had proved himself as the saviour of Byzantium in its hour of need, and a new spirit of hope began to arise in the war-weary Byzantines. Yet, of course, the threat of Chakas still remained in the south. Fortunately for the Byzantines, Alexius had also been building up his navy over the years, within the confines of Constantinople's protected harbour. And in early 1091, Alexius's trusted kinsman, Constantine de Lassanos, broke out of the Bosporus to drive Chakas's navy away from the Sea of Marmara, even going so far as to take back the island of Chios. Yet Chakas was by no means beaten, 
and everyone in the city knew that he would return. After word spread of the destruction of the entire Pechenegg nation, however, a fearsome foe for over 200 years, even amongst the various tribes of steppe nomads of the Pontic Steppe, Alexius's reputation grew immeasurably. He was no longer simply a young upstart usurper. He was now a proven and capable military commander, and more and more usurpers and rebels began to fall in line behind him accordingly. In 1092, Alexius again sent Constantine de Lassenos, along with another general, John Ducas, on the offensive against Chakas. Together, they attacked the fortress of Miletine on the island of Lesbos, where the Turkish fleet was based at the time. Chakas resisted for three months, but finally reluctantly agreed to negotiate a surrender of the fortress as he began to run out of supplies. Almost as soon as the Turkish fleet left the island, however, on their way back to Smyrna, Delasanos launched an ingenious ambush, attacking the Turkish fleet with everything that he had, perhaps utilising Greek fire to set the Turkish war galleys aflame, completely destroying most of Jackass's ships, sending their unfortunate occupants to the bottom of the Mediterranean. Within just a handful of months, however, quite astonishingly, and much to the horror of Delasinos and his men, Chakas was seemingly back at full strength, descending once more upon Constantinople, ruthlessly attacking the port of Abydos in the Sea of Marmara. Once again, Alexius was going to have to think outside of the box to deal with the threat from Smyrna, and once again, an opportunity arose in the form of a third party coming to his rescue. Events in the rest of the Seljuk Empire had come to a head around this time, after the death of the Sultan Malik Shah plunged the once mighty empire into internal discord. Never again would a Sultan rule over the entire Seljuk Empire. It had burned brightly and would now collapse in on itself just as quickly. And for the most part, fall into the hands of regional warlords and relatives of the Sultan. The already overextended state, based far to the east in modern-day Syria and Iran, had long exercised little serious control over its territories in Asia Minor. And now, the young son of the Sultan of Rum, Kilij Arslan, whose father, Suleiman ibn Qutulmush, had vied with the previous Sultan Al-Parslan and his successor Malik Shah for his own independence, losing his life in the process but passing on this struggle to his son, was finally able to exert his own authority as the independent Sultan of Rum, that is, the Seljuk territories in Asia Minor that had been conquered from the Byzantines. His name was Kilij Arslan, and though he himself was a force to be reckoned with, he was a different character altogether from Chakas. In short, Alexius could deal with him diplomatically, and he did so for the rest of his career.
Chakas was a potential threat to both Kilij Arslan and Alexius Komnenos, and before long the two conspired to put an end to the Emir of Smyrna once and for all. Even though Kilij Arslan was married to Chakas's daughter, and was thus his son-in-law. As Kilij Arslan approached Chakas's position at Abydos, he invited his father-in-law to join him at a banquet. Chakas accepted, and having no idea of the plan, he was murdered there in early 1093. Once again, against all the odds, Alexius had used masterful diplomacy to win the day, and thus assure the survival of the empire. In the years ahead, Byzantium would go on to stage a remarkable recovery under Alexius and his descendants, known as the Komnenian Restoration. Within just a year or two of Chakas's murder, Byzantine armies again returned to the shores of Asia Minor, reconquering much of the lost territory there, including the fertile coastal regions along with many of the most important cities, just as Kilij Arslan solidified his hold over the Turkic tribes of the interior, establishing a firm power base at the city of Iconium. With the restoration of a firm central government at Constantinople, and the establishment of the Crusader states in the Levant taking some pressure off from potential attack from the east, the empire became rich again, and once more, the great city became the foremost metropolis of the Christian world. Though in truth, by the time the warriors of the First Crusade arrived in Anatolia in the late 1090s, much of the worst had already come to pass. In 1097, when the city of Smyrna was finally retaken by a Byzantine army under John Ducas, the city was still held by a warlord named Chakas, probably the son of the ruthless Emir, who just might have become an emperor had events played out slightly differently. This is a brand new podcast. So if you like what you heard, the best way to help the show out is to leave a review on iTunes. This is the best way for new podcasts to grow and for people to find the show. You can also find tons more historical material over on the History Time social media links. We're on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. If you really like what you heard and want to help me to keep making new podcasts, videos and articles then the best way to help is to become a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash historytimeuk. For as little as a dollar a month, you'll help me to keep making material, get sneak previews of what I'm working on, and gain the opportunity to vote on upcoming videos and podcasts. I'm Pete Kelly, and you've been listening to History Time. See you on the next one.